FBI Studios. This is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Rock. Monday morning, I walked into my office contemplating what the topic of this week's episode should be. I knew that it couldn't be a traditional, full-scripted episode. I don't think I'd be winning Boss of the Year if I made Kelly and Shane work through the holiday, so I needed something different. But I also didn't want to publish just another police interview. I wanted to create something with some substance and purpose, just tricky in these short weeks. But then I opened up an email from a listener named Sally. Sally's been around since the very beginning and wanted to let me know privately that she's struggling with this season. Her message was very well thought out, and it was clear it was written with purpose. She wasn't writing to complain. She was writing to let me know that there's a disconnect that I may not realize is there between me and some of the listeners. Sally told me that she doesn't understand the why in this season. As a listener, she's trying to engage in the investigation, but her own self-reflection revealed where the lack of motivation is coming from. You as listeners don't really know who you're fighting for. You don't know who you're trying to help or even if you want to help them. All you have is a couple of names and a few comments made by me throughout the season indicating that these two men, Robert and Christian, might be innocent. So today, Sally, this episode is for you and for the rest of you who have continued to stick this investigation out and have trusted the process even when you're struggling to do so. This is Season 12, Episode 35, The Why. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This job's tougher than you might think. And don't get me wrong, I love my job, and I'm not here to complain about it. I'm blessed to be able to do what I do. But it's tough. There are a lot of decisions that have to be made every week. Decisions that I know some will be happy with and others won't. This comes with the territory. I'm telling you this because I want you to understand where my passion truly lies. It's not talking into a microphone. In fact, that's my least favorite part of my job. Especially today. I'm very conscious of the fact that every single word that I say will be scrutinized. Both by fans and critics. There are some of you right now who are already drafting your Facebook posts about the words that I'm speaking right now. The willingness of people to constantly spend their time and energy publicly attacking a person's life work is at an all-time high. And that used to really bother me. But over the years, I've learned to tune out the noise. I hear all the time, Bob, if you say that, the other page is going to go off about it. As if the other page wouldn't find fault in my work no matter what I do. I'm not telling you all this to complain, or even in a misguided hope that some perspective might change behaviors. 
People that live in negativity and hate don't know anything different. They don't want anything different. They thrive on it. And they're not going to change because of anything that I say. I'm being transparent with you. Those of you who really care. Because Sally let me know that there really is a disconnect with a lot of you loyal listeners. And that does matter to me. And I want you to understand how we got here. So please bear with me. When I first started doing this show, it was just me and a microphone in my garden shed. No script, no aspirations of being anything bigger. I was just talking to you, a group of people who were interested in the same case that I was. Then, as the show grew in popularity, I really focused on production quality. I wanted to make a great podcast, full of the emotion and connection that I truly felt with Ed and Kenny and Jesse. I was passionate about helping them, and I wanted you to be passionate right along with me. But over the years, the group of people who hate literally everything that I do grew larger and larger as our audience was growing. And the complaints about bias grew louder and louder. People were saying that I was manipulating my audience by making them get emotionally attached to the convicted person we were trying to help, which is what led us here today. I decided a few seasons back to change my approach. I don't know if a lot of you even noticed, but the approach was to focus on the investigation and not the people. Just the facts, Jack. Usually, the case file was small enough that even with that approach, it didn't take too awful long to get into Jamie or Deb or Jennifer and their families. But this season is different. The case file is massive. It's been 35 weeks and you all still don't know who Robert and Christian are. A year ago this weekend, I made my first trip to Pinion Pines to begin my investigation, months before the season began. During that trip, I recorded a lot of interviews, mostly with Robert and Christian's families. But when the time came to launch the season and to create a captivating trailer before we started, I changed my mind. I decided not to play them. I didn't want to manipulate your emotions. I wanted to do a full, unbiased reinvestigation of the case starting at ground zero. And ever since that moment, that's where my mind has been. I told you that podcasting is not my favorite part of this job, and I meant it. What I really love doing is investigating, which, believe it or not, can be less than entertaining at times. But for me, this season has been just what the doctor ordered. I screened the case, determined that Robert and Christian are more than likely innocent, then I went back to the beginning to see if I was right. My methodology was simple. Investigate the case like I was the first person to do so. Go where the leads take me without bias. Then if they take me to Robert and Christian, well, then so be it. I was wrong, I guess. But that's not what happened. Not even close. Even though I knew that you all were dying to hear more about Robert and Christian, that's not where the investigation was taking me. There was the initial lead about Robert planning to go for a hike that night. But his explanation in his interview seemed plausible. He seemed to genuinely not know that Becky was found in a wheelbarrow in the off-mic bit that we heard after the interview finished. And Christian's story matched his. And the phone records and anthropology report made it practically impossible for them to have been on the scene when Becky was lit on fire. And then there's the complete and utter lack of motive. If I was the initial investigators in the case and had no bias, I would have done exactly what they did. Put a pin in Robert and Christian 
and move on to the more promising leads. So that's what I did. My focus has been 100% on finding out who killed Becky, Vicky, and John. And let me be very clear when I say this to you now. I do not believe that it was Robert and Christian. Not at all. And therefore, I've seen very little need to talk about them, practically speaking. But what I've missed is what Sally brought to my attention. The why. For many of you, bringing the real perpetrators to justice is enough. But for a lot of you, it's not enough. Robert and Christian are in prison fighting for their lives, and it's human nature to want to know why we should help them. John, Vicky, and Becky are gone. They're not coming back no matter what we do. But Robert and Christian have a lot of life left to live, and families that love them, miss them, and need them. And I'm ready now to take on the personal attacks and the criticism and the accusations of bias. Go ahead, fire away. I'll never please you people. So I'm happy to just let you go on doing your thing. Hate away. Hope it makes you feel better about yourself. But for the rest of you, here's my why. I recorded this interview with Christian's mother, Jana, a year ago. Almost exactly a year ago. And I think it's time that you heard it for yourself. After the interview, I'll have some closing remarks about the case. But my why isn't about a case file. It's about people. People like Jana. The day of the murders was um, was on a Sunday. It was a normal day, and my son went to work. Um, he worked at the water park, and he worked with Jackie and Lois and Robert. Um, everything was normal. He um, came home. I always fed him dinner, but I, I don't remember what I fed him. Um and he would usually take a shower because it was out in the hot sun all day. And then um, a lot of times he'd take a nap. But apparently him and Robert left because they were going to go do what they were going to do, which I know now was to go to church. And, um, and then later on, you know, go to his dad's and then do the paintballs. And I do remember him coming home that night again. And in my mind, I want to say he took another shower. He took a lot of showers. Changed and um, went to Jackie's. And in Jackie's statement and my statement, they're almost identical. He would usually be at her house. I, I said when he started dating Jackie, he would leave around 9 o'clock. She said the exact same thing. Exactly. He would usually be here around 9 o'clock. So, in my mind, I'm thinking he came home like he normally did and uh, went over to her house. Everything was normal. I thought nothing of it. And then, um, so, everything's fine. Everything's normal. And then the cops show up at my house. I don't know how many days after that. Um, and I call his dad because Christian was over at his dad's. So I said, you need to come over here because there's two police officers. I want to ask Christian about that murder that happened. And so they come over. They're outside talking. I'm in the house. They don't ask me anything. They talk to John, and John pretty much just says, Honey, if 
his son, if there's anything you need to tell him, tell him. And Christian gave him a statement, which we have a copy of all that, and just told him exactly what he did with Robert, and that she had came over here, supposedly, the day before, for about 15 minutes, and which I don't even remember that, and um, asked him to go hiking, because she was in the neighborhood. And uh, um, Robert's like, yeah, yeah, we'll think about it, blah, blah, blah. So he gives her a hug, and Christian shakes her hand. They say goodbye, and they both just said, we ain't going hiking. That was it, which I don't know about any of that. It's the stuff I've read in the transcript. So um, I go outside, and I talk to John, his dad. We're out here, and I said, you know, it just can't be him because he was home the time of the murders. I believe he was home around 9.30, and I was relaxed. I was calm. It was like, no way did my son do this. <coughs> I just knew he was home. Mm-hmm. So, um, or he was, in my mind, he was coming and going, which is what was normal. He would come, he would go, he would come, he would go. So um, there was no red flags at all. And so I didn't think anything of it. And um, so we never talked about it again, me and my son. It was never brought up. And then the guy came over again. And I think it was a different guy. And he goes, well, can we just look at, we just, we just had a couple loose hands. We just need to, you know, just take a look at his bedroom. And I'm like, okay, sure. No problem. Let him in. Goes in his room, looks at everything. Okay. Thank you. You know? And so he leaves and I'm just like, still, I don't think anything of it. Nothing. Never talked about it again was never brought up. It wasn't until a year later when I come home to my house with cops in my home, and I guess they're going through his home too, that that they've got these search warrants. And um, so now I'm a little concerned. I'm like, honey, what's going on? Oh, mom, you know, I don't know. They just, they just keep wanting to, you know, I don't, I don't know. I can't even remember what we talked about. Just, that he didn't do it, and I knew he didn't do it, and and um, and then it's just like it just kind of went away, and he enlisted in the army, and everything was fine, and then all of a sudden this whole nightmare started again with my son, and I remember they they called him in the army. Jackie's pregnant, and they asked him to come to what uh, here. They want to ask him some more questions. And, um, and they did it over there too, over in, uh, Washington. And, um, I mean, it was just horrible. And I remember he was at the airport and his arm had been shot and they throw him down on the ground. My understanding was him on the ground, Jackie on the ground, she's pregnant. And, um, they questioned him again and he's like, are you under arrest? And they're like, no. And then when he's getting ready to leave on the airplane, that's when they arrested him. So she had to go home pregnant. And we had to hire an attorney. And everyone believed my son had nothing to do with this. And we were up against Zellerbach at that time. 
And then, like we were talking the other night about with Bonnie Garcia and that whole election that was going on, and that was her son that was on the mountain that was obsessed with her, um, that we had no connection with whatsoever. And um, we had to go through that whole thing thinking that this would be resolved, thinking that this is just ridiculous. Like, how they have nothing. This is just to win an election. And um, so, you know, of course, we were getting ready for to go to trial and everything. And then, um, you know, we went after the, the district attorney and the police officers and all of that. And none of them would keep showing up in court until the case was dropped. It was just dropped. Nothing even happened. So again, we tried building our lives again. Christian starts, he's lost his career. He's trying to get his family taken care of. And, and by now, he's born. And um, they're up in Washington, and they're building a life for themselves. They have their home. They have their baby. And um, and I'm sitting in a meeting, and I get the call that that they're arresting our son again. And I'm just cannot believe it. And the next day, we see my son all over the news uh, saying that he made a statement to they wouldn't they would not disclose who Jeremy Witt was. They would not let us know who he was. But that they had a witness that had heard my son say, you know, something horribly went wrong. We had to torch the up in place. And that's why they arrested my son. So, again, that's all they got. And then, um, what was the other thing they had? Something about they had more DNA, I guess. I don't know. And I just looked at the original report of the fingerprint here that I was reading last night, no fingerprints. Nothing could be found on the card. I'll find it. Oh, right here. It is previously reported that forensic tech Scott found no prints on the business card. Original report. So all of a sudden, they have new DNA, new DNA technology. And the first judge said, if that's all you got, that's transferable. That means nothing. You got more than that? That means nothing. That business card means nothing. I mean, he was on his game. He just, like, that that doesn't prove anything, you know? Anyone can touch a card, a, a page, it could be anywhere. County sitting in a cell for two years waiting to go to trial and we spent two years preparing for the trial and I, I mean I just the, these are all the pages of all the people that they went and talked to and I would say 
75% of the work we did for trial, we weren't able to use because the judge wouldn't allow it. Wouldn't allow any of the third party. Would not allow nothing. None of our witnesses that were going to come. We had people flying from back east, coming in from Arizona. We had all these people coming. No one was allowed in. If we brought, we weren't even allowed to talk about the red truck fleeing the scene. That's how insane it was. And my attorney's like, and there goes the murderer. Couldn't talk about it because it was connected to Javier Garcia. So when my son did his talk and said, I've had to fight with my hands behind my back. And they brought people specifically in here to lie. That's what we had to sit through for six weeks to pay $16,000 to some people clear out in Florida to do their scientific whatever, cell tower whatever, which we all know is junk science, which actually means nothing, put on a good show. You know, we had to sit there and watch half the jury, three of them that slept most of the time. We had to sit there and watch a judge shop for wine while the trial was going on. We had to sit there and watch our sons sit downstairs two to three hours before trial. And one day they didn't even feed them because they forgot. And to just sit there and go through this whole nightmare, just like you're just like having an out-of-body experience, like, we couldn't even defend ourselves. We couldn't do anything. Everything we asked for was denied. And we even asked, we, we said, we've got this juror sleeping after lunch. we got this one sleeping. We told both of our attorneys, and they're just like, yeah, well, we don't want to upset the jury. Well, I feel like we're winning, and we've got them on our side right now. And I'm like, they're sleeping. So it was just very frustrating. Um, and then when they brought in the guy, the one that was doing the guns, the gun guy, basically, he did not want to say. It was so hard for him to not say this. My attorney had to ask him at least five times, is there anything that matches the guns that Christian had that they pulled um, 10 years ago? They still have his guns. No. There was not one weapon that they got from my son, which were like old shotguns, <laughs> my son and Robert that matched the weapons that were used. And you remember, they took them a year later. They weren't right after the murder. Mm -hmm. It was a year later. And he had acquired them, and they proved that they had acquired them after the fact. But was there anything that matches? And he had to say no. And the prosecutors were just trying to make it look like those were the weapons that were used. And they weren't. They weren't. You know, the same thing with the shoes. They tried to make it look like their shoes matched the prints. They didn't. There was nothing at the crime scene that connected Robert or Christian. The crime scene. Like, you know, where the house is and the wheelbarrow. Nothing. 
And then when at the very end, when they're like, okay, so what was their motive? To be selfish? Are you kidding me? Both boys are the most unselfish human beings you're ever going to find. Like, my son would always be the one that would go the extra mile to help. Even in his last year of school, he was the teacher's aide. When he worked at Tyler's Burgers, he was always, you know, what more can I do? I mean, he also worked at Mission Mission Hills. What more? It was always he went the extra mile. It's, it's the way he was as a ranger. Even when his days were off, he would stay and work with the new guy. And he could have been taken off of his friends. He served for six and a half years. And he was stationed in Georgia. And then he got moved to Tacoma. And he was deployed... Um, like I said, for six and a half years, he served as a ranger. He served as a sniper. He was airborne. He was a sergeant. He um, was a leader in everything he did. He um, got two Purple Hearts. He got Medal of Valor. Um, he was shot. They had to do eight surgeries to put his arm back together. And, um, and that was his life. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to serve his country. He wanted to do something in life that people would be proud of him. That's that he felt by putting his country first, that's something that he could be, that people would be very proud of him as a man, that he served his country selflessly. That was his whole life. That was everything. He was going to be a career, a career veteran, you know, serving in the Army. He planned to be there for a minimum of 20 years. And that pretty much was taken from him, all of it. And I wish Ranger Ray was here because the last conversation I had with him is he told me, Ranger Ray is a career uh, ranger also, and he's met with the president, and he's probably one of the highest decorated rangers there are. And he just said Christian was the elite of the elite. If he made his mind to do something, he did it the first time. There was no seconds. There was no thirds. There was no giving up. And um, he always put his fellow man first. He fought selflessly. When they were in a battle, this battle went on, he said, for almost um, 24 hours, nonstop shooting. And um, they shot. Ray got shot. He got shot in the back. And had Christian not jumped in front of the bullet or the bullets coming at him and pushed him, he'd either be dead or paralyzed. He stood up for him. He has his name tattooed on his body. Um, I do have like seven letters um, that I can give you a copy of that of what they they all um, told a very similar story that even when he was shot, he was trying to help them or put them first. Um, so for for this to be taken from his life. 
this is, again, it's just, you're not going to find, there isn't a lot of Christians out there. Why, why was he awarded the Medal of Valor? Um, to be honest, I would have to ask him. I Because this is the first time I, we've had someone in the military. I It's like, this is all new to me. Mm-hmm. So I can definitely find out. I know the Purple Hearts are because he got shot. Medal of Valor, I want to say, it's very similar to what I'm talking about, where he, he fought selflessly and was helping the other Rangers take care of them, putting himself in arm's way, you know, willing to get killed in spite of. He never put himself first, ever. So, again, like when he said I would have taken a bullet for anyone in this room, that's exactly what he meant. He put his country first. The t- so when the trial ended, the jury deliberated for what, 10 days? 10 days. Can you talk about that 10 days and what that was like for you? Well, I mean... I, you know, I was very fortunate because I had an army of women that were with me every single day. They sat with me in trial. They took, they took time off to sit with me and they all stood up for him and and shared. Um, and we were all on pins and needles, but be very honest, we didn't think this was going to happen. We really thought, and like I said, I got a text from but you know that he that he thought he lost. He goes, I feel like I just lost a big, high-profile case. And so, yeah, we were scared, but yet because of all we had, so many of us there every single day, the love and support. It was just like, you know. And then they had it in the news. That, you know, anyone that goes 10 days is going to be a hung jury. You know, good job, attorneys. You did a great job. That was all over the news. I mean, that's what we were listening to. And so um, when the jury was, when the verdict was being read, like, I was holding on to my daughter-in-law's hand. And we heard Christian Smith innocent. And we're like, yes. And then all of a sudden it was guilty, guilty, guilty. Just like. It wasn't even real. It was horrible. And when we left the courtroom, one of my girls that was with me, she was standing behind the prosecutors just screaming at him, going, you know, she was calling him every name in the book. How could you do this? You know they're innocent. And the prosecutor just gave us a real smug, because I get it what I do, and I've been doing this for 30 years, and just start walked off. And... It was just, it's still bad.
But I stood up for my son. I made a statement, and I told him exactly what they did, how they did it. And that they put on the news. They didn't put her statement on the news. Of course they didn't. And then they removed my statement because they didn't want to see it. And, you know, and so here we are now. Our whole life is consumed with bringing him home. And that's why you're here. Because we won't give up till they come home. And we just never knew this world even existed. Like that innocent like we said, like how corrupt is the system that they are putting innocent people away? We are in twenty twenty one. And I know I know they know that they're innocent. I know the cops know, and I believe the Freely family knows. I believe anyone that sat in that courtroom knows that they're innocent. There's no way you could sit there and listen to the horrible job and the lies and not letting Jeremy Witt sit on that, sit on that jury and watching Javier lie. They know. So, <sighs> we just keep praying that something good happens, that someone comes forward and just says, I can't, you know, even a juror just says, I, I can't live with myself. I know that we screwed up and it doesn't go on for years. Because I have to, I have to look at that little girl. She shows more courage every day with a smile on her face and positive that wants her dad. And she'll say, why did those bad people take my dad? And she'll cry and she'll lose it to the point where she's sobbing. She'll say, I have dreams that when I wake up, my daddy's here. And there's nothing I can do. And then she'll get over it and she'll start over again. The hardest thing that we had to do was walk into that penitentiary with her. Never wanted her to be exposed to that world. But love for a child and his daddy. I mean, my son loves his daughter. He lives for her. And that's what he told me. He goes, there is nothing in here that they can do to me 
that'll stop me from seeing my daughter someday. He goes, when I go to that parole board, there's not going to be one blemish. Nothing. He says, I will come home. A mother's passion for bringing her son home, as moving as it is, isn't what has me convinced that Robert and Christian are innocent. This case is actually simple, at least when it comes to Robert and Christian. To believe that these two are guilty, you have to believe that they went up the mountain with murder in mind with at least two guns loaded and ready. You have to believe that they had some kind of motive to do so, which they didn't. You have to convince yourself that before they went up the mountain to kill a whole family, they first set out to go to church and even called a church to see if they could catch a late service. You have to believe that they went up the mountain, committed a triple homicide, lit the house and Becky's body on fire, and drove away past dozens of houses without anyone ever seeing a car leaving the property. And even though the forensic anthropologist proved through her years of experiments, experience, and studies, and testified that Becky's body was burning for no more than 20 minutes, even if you take the very far extreme number that the prosecutor pushed her into, 30 minutes, you then have to believe that seconds after lighting the fire, Robert and Christian jumped into a car that no one saw, drove at ridiculous speeds down dark, unfamiliar dirt roads where, again, no one saw them, and these roads were in such bad condition that the fire truck actually got stuck on the way to the scene. You have to believe that they sped down the switchbacks and through town in record time, caught every single green light, and Robert just happened to check his voicemail, not at the first tower he came to when he first got service, not even the second or the third, but exactly when he reached the outside range of the fourth tower that he came across. In order to think they're guilty, you have to believe that Robert and Christian both gave police an easily verifiable alibi that they went to the AMPM gas station before they went home, and they must have done so knowing that the police would not go check the surveillance footage for weeks not till after it was too late. You have to believe that they committed this crime without leaving a single shred of forensic evidence on the crime scene. Someone left DNA on Becky's ankles and the wheelbarrow handles, but you have to believe that that's just a coincidence because that DNA didn't belong to Robert or Christian or the victims. You have to believe that they committed the crime leaving footprints from more feet than they have attached to their legs and somehow there's no record of any shoes that they've ever owned matching a single print. And conveniently, the state didn't request the FBI expert to determine the size of the shoe that made the prints, even though he said that he could have done so, all they had to do was ask. In order to believe that these men are guilty, you have to look past all risk factors, leads, evidence, and suspects, and convince yourself that a lone business card allegedly found hundreds of yards away from the crime scene is the solid linchpin of the state's case. You're going to need to forget the fact that multiple labs said that there was no usable prints or DNA on the card. Forget the fact that it's sun-stained as though it's been out in the desert for much longer than a few hours. And forget the fact that in a news report, the anchor reported that a source told her that they had turned that card over to the police, that the police didn't even find it where they said they did. You also have to accept that we take the police at their word that there were more tracks than we have photos of, that there was an undocumented, quote, area of disturbance that wasn't mentioned at all by the original crime scene investigator or photographed. 
You have to be okay with the fact that even the fucking detectives have no idea where the business card was found. None. Not a clue. They say it was found between 200 and 800 yards away. To put that in perspective, that means somewhere between two football fields away and a half of a mile. For you to believe these men are guilty, you have to believe that they cold-heartedly and deliberately without motive brutally murdered three people and lit them on fire and then never committed another crime for the rest of their lives. What's their post-offense behavior? Robert went on to marry his high school sweetheart Sarah, who he was dating at the time, and lived an extraordinarily ordinary life, working as an HVAC technician, until he was arrested eight years later. He never moved out of the valley. After that first arrest and after the charges were dropped, he and Sarah divorced, and Robert went right back to work at his HVAC job and eventually fell in love with and married a woman named B, who you'll hear from soon. And Christian, after this horrific crime, he spent another year working in the valley before following through with his plan to enlist in the army, but not just as a typical soldier. Christian became a special forces army ranger, the elite of the elite, which brings up something that most people don't even know about. Since I started this case, I've had multiple special forces operators reach out to me to tell me how laughable it is that Christian was involved in this crime. The reason they know it's ridiculous is because in order to become a ranger, you not only have to pass the grueling physical tests and the written tests, but you also have to pass a series of polygraphs and psychological testing. Many, many soldiers are washed out of the program during this testing. I've been told that there is no chance in hell that someone who did something like this, particularly someone who did something like this and is trying to hide it, could ever pass those tests. People wash out all the time just because they tried to lie about smoking pot at a party. The Rangers rely on trust and honor, and Christian was both trusted and honored by his fellow Rangers, and they continue to honor him even to this day. To believe that Christian was complicit in these murders, you have to reconcile in your mind that the same person who brutally killed three innocent people, one of whom he barely knew and the other two he had never met, and then later had his arm nearly blown off while taking a bullet for another man, sacrificing himself to save a life, an act that awarded him one of the military's highest honors, the Medal of Valor. Twelve jurors sat through weeks of trial and heard all of the evidence in this case. At least they heard all of the state's evidence. The defense was handcuffed at every turn and wasn't allowed to present their arguments or evidence. And still, at least a fraction of those twelve jurors heard all of the evidence and voted not guilty for nine days. For nine days, they stuck to their guns and voted not guilty over and over and over and over again. Then, on day 10, a Friday, the day most wrongful convictions occur, they finally caved and changed their vote. Ask yourself, what do you think caused them to change their vote to guilty? No new evidence was presented during those 10 days, just arguments amongst the jurors and pressure. Pressure from the judge pressure from the other jurors who wanted to be done with this case after two months, who wanted to get back to their lives and enjoy their weekend. 
these two men didn't get convicted on evidence. They were convicted on convenience. So let me circle this back to me. My why. Why have I committed a year at this point to working on this case, with possibly another year left to go? Well, here's the question that I'm sure you all want the answer to. Do I believe that Robert Pape and Christian Smith are innocent? You're goddamn right I do. They were convicted on a case built from smoke and mirrors. I thought that through these 35 weeks I'd find something, some shred of something that would point me in their direction. But everything we found so far points the other direction. These two men are innocent. They were wrongfully convicted, and that's why I'm fighting for them. Who's with me? We just keep praying that something good happens. That someone comes forward and it doesn't go on for years. Because I have to I have to look at that little girl. It shows more courage. That wants her dad. And she'll say, Why did those bad people take my dad? And she'll cry and she'll lose it to the point where she's sobbing. She'll say, I have dreams that when I wake up, my daddy's here. And there's nothing I can do. Our whole life is consumed with bringing him home. And that's why you're here. Because we won't give up till they come home. NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnick, Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. 
just go to patreon.com slash truth and justice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at BobRuffTruth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro. Driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost.